Reimagining Black Relations, a podcast on solutions to issues relating to the Black race. Welcome to another episode of Reimagining Black Relations. I'm your host, Dr. Francesca Fajimi. If you've ever had any dealings with Blacks, you have a Black matter, so this is for you. Together, let's begin to shape and reimagine our Black relations. Whether you are Black, white, or brown, trust me, you will learn, gain, and execute just by listening. Come along. Our guest today is George Critchlow, an emeritus professor of law who has transitioned from a world of legal briefs and law review articles to creative writing. He taught law at Gonzaga University School of Law in Spokane, Washington for many years. He's also an experienced trial lawyer with civil and criminal experience in state courts, federal courts, and the Supreme Court of the United States. He taught international human rights law and consulted in Europe, South America, and the Middle East. His interest in fairness, equal opportunity, and civil liberties has been a central part of his professional life. His new book, The Lifer and the Lawyer, a story of punishment, penitence, and privilege, contributes to the ongoing national discussion about sentencing, rehabilitation, and racially disparate treatment. Unlike other books, it is not about an innocent man unjustly imprisoned. Rather, it is about a guilty man who was truly dangerous in his youth, but who has not been dangerous for decades. Although morally and spiritually transformed, he has been mostly forgotten, separated from his family, and left to languish in a prison cell in the eastern Washington desert. Professor Critchlow, thank you for joining us on Reimagining Black Relations. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you and to talk about the uh, subject matter that you're interested in. I appreciate it. Of course. Professor, central to your professional life is the issue of fairness, equal opportunity, and civil liberties. Why did you develop this interest? What was your motivation? Well, you know, that's a good question. I'm not sure that I can uh, necessarily or precisely uh, answer it with certainty, but I can tell you that uh, I was raised in a primarily um, white community in a very conservative community in a provincial part of southeastern Washington. I did not have necessarily a lot of exposure to multicultural uh, communities or people, but I was fortunate to have, even though my community was quite conservative, uh, two parents who were very progressive and very interested in civil rights. These were people who in the early 50s actually were involved in the civil rights movement and stayed with their work and their focus on civil rights issues throughout the 50s and the 60s. And uh, I was influenced by my parents in a profound and and powerful way. Uh, And not only were they politically interested in civil rights issues, by the way, my father was a lawyer and he did a lot of civil rights work as a lawyer. But, but not only were they politically and legally interested in those issues, they uh, involved our family, including me and my siblings, in, consciously and intentionally in experiences with people, not only people of color and people from dif- different cultural backgrounds, but uh, people who were not very well off financially. They wanted us to understand that our world was a white privileged world, and that world was very different from a lot of other people's worlds. And they didn't do that in order to uh, instruct us about what it meant to be privileged. They did it because they wanted us to understand that everyone was human and that everyone had sort of common needs and common uh, uh, problems. And they were concerned, I think, that because we lived in a white conservative area, that we might grow up thinking that our community reflected the world. So they worked really hard to try to correct that. So as I grew up and ultimately went to law school, I think I entered my professional education maybe with a broader understanding uh, 
of what I wanted to do and what I thought the legal system should do as compared to many of my colleagues in law school. So that's part of the answer. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. It's actually pretty powerful, the influence your parents have on you. We continue to hear that Black people are disproportionately in prison in the United States. Is this true? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, all the data is there. Uh, I mean, statistically, you can make the case that people of color in general are disproportionately impacted by the criminal justice system. Uh, It's very important for people to understand that the disproportionate representation of especially African-American men in the prison system in the United States is not a result of Black people committing more crimes. And I think, unfortunately, many Americans assume that to be the case. So they're unwilling to look at the root cause. You know, the the origins of the problem clearly have to do with systemic and institutional racism. But you have to look beyond the statistics in order to really understand the dynamics of disparate justice. Too many people just say, well, you know, I'm sorry there's more Blacks in prison, but more Blacks commit crimes. That's how it works. I was once involved in a lawsuit in federal court that challenged the voting system. And uh, the the goal of the case was to um, eliminate uh, the voting prohibition on convicted felons in Washington State. The theory was that the Voting Rights Act was violated because of systemic racism that caused more people of color to go to prison than white people. The theory was simply that the entire justice system was infected by racism. Okay, some of it was very subtle, very quiet. Some of it was very overt. So in that case, we brought statistics that were the result of studies that were conducted throughout the state of Washington and also throughout the uh, city of Seattle. And what those studies showed was, for instance, if black, um, excuse me, if the police force in Seattle wanted to sort of satisfy the quota that was necessary to show that there was effective um, monitoring Uh, and interdiction of drugs, the police force, those that were assigned to, you know, drug duty, would go to the areas in Seattle that, that were populated by Black people. They would basically focus on the kids downtown and the kids in what we call the Capitol Hill area in the central area of of Seattle, which were the African American uh, communities. Everyone knew that the university kids and the suburban kids and older people smoked marijuana. Everyone knew they used cocaine. Everyone knew that drugs were pervasively used and distributed throughout the whole area. But the police knew that they could get black people much more easily than they could you know, go out and, and bust kids or, or adults in, in those other communities. So it was a question not so much of Black kids doing drugs, it was a question of law enforcement focusing on the Black communities because those were easier communities to bust people and they could get convictions if they busted Black people more easily than they could if they busted people in the suburban areas or in the university areas who were sort of white middle-class privileged kids. And the result of that kind of thinking in law enforcement and the overall judicial system is that many people who observe the court system assume that they're arresting, prosecuting, and convicting only the people that are present in the community who deserve to be busted. And in fact, the reality is police choose who to focus on. They choose who to profile and they communicate then to the community, both indirectly and directly, that they're doing their job based on who's doing the crimes. And communities of white people, I think, even if they're not consciously um, discriminatory or racist, they start developing, I think, 
or reinforcing racist ideas because they start believing that the system is um, doing uh, what the system is supposed to do based on the behavior of young black and Americans as, as opposed to the systematic exclusion of, of, of white folks in terms of the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the law enforcement practices. So that's just an example of what I would call systemic racism that I understand both by my reading, by looking at the statistics, by uh, looking at police practices that I've seen directly and indirectly, I understand that, but I don't think a lot of people understand that. So, you know, it's important for all of us to communicate to our friends, our neighbors, to society in general, our experiences and the information is, that's out there that runs counter to the information that perhaps we've received uh, throughout most of our lives. What you describe also does some kind of injustice to the non-Black population as well, because if they commit crimes and they are not charged accordingly, first of all, they'll be thinking Blacks are terrible. They must be doing something really bad. I mean, for this white person who does something that's really worse, not convicted or did not receive uh, the same type of conviction, would think Blacks are much more terrible. And it gives them power to continue to do whatever they do, right? Which doesn't help the society, does it? Yes, but that I, I think that that's absolutely true. It's also interesting to think that there's a moral double standard. If, you know, I actually went to the University of Washington to go back to that example. I know what life was like when I was young. And I know that I and most of my friends at some point or another were probably going to consume drugs experimentally or recreationally. Okay. I could perhaps go to a party where there would be drugs present or available to me. And I could engage in drug use thinking that I'm kind of cool. You know, I'm just experimenting. I'm just a white college kid, you know, doing what white college kids do. But no one's necessarily looking at me or trying to, you know, investigate or arrest or, or punish me for my conduct. So I'm allowed to not only get away with it, I'm allowed to think of myself in a way that um, is very different than the way you might think of a kid on the street who's black, who gets picked up either using or distributing drugs. So it, there's this subtle sort of notion that I'm morally superior because no one's looking at my behavior and I can be allowed to understand black drug use as something that is bad, you know, something that is destructive, something that is immoral or different from what I'm doing. It's a very, very strange thing, I think, that we do not, as white people, we don't dig down on really what's going on in terms of how we develop our viewpoints and our opinions around race. All of us, we are a product of our education, our society, our exposure. And obviously the exposure dictates that you don't need to worry about those black people. They're just terrible. But whatever you are doing as a white person, it's almost always okay, almost always right, almost always acceptable. Isn't that the case? Well, it's absolutely the case. The other difference, of course, is how we treat um, white-collar crime versus street crime. You know, at some point, the white-collar crime can certainly be as damaging to communities and uh, individuals as any kind of other crime, whether it's on the street or not. But we understand white-collar crime to be less onerous or, or less um, morally re, uh, reprehensible because we think that white people who get uh, into criminal activity are probably basically good people who made a mistake. And, and that's why the uh, white-collar criminal who may steal millions of dollars in a, you know, some kind of organized fraud or some kind of embezzlement project or some kind of, you know, scam goes to jail 
if at all, for relatively short periods of time, has their hand slapped, they're embarrassed, but you know, they get out maybe and their life goes on. And a 18-year-old black kid who's dealing a little bit of coke, maybe he or she is a mule for someone kind of being exploited or manipulated, uh, you know, a kid who's poor, who needs some money, ends up being subject to mandatory federal drug laws and going to jail for maybe 15 years or 20 years. And his or her life then is basically destroyed. The opportunity for that person ever to get back on his feet is taken away from him in a way that no, not not no, but many white people are, you know, they, they never experience that. They're never subject to that. And the understanding of that white person in many criminal contexts is excused. You know, the understanding about what motivated a young black kid to do something is disregarded because we already know that the black kid is probably got some moral issues and needs to be probably eliminated from society so that we're no longer subject to the inclination to do crime. So, Professor, I came across something that is actually very disturbing to me. I know that United States leads the world in incarceration. Uh, 25% of the world's prisoners are here in the United States. That by itself is a problem, but comparing United States to the top 10 countries, United States leading them is actually very disturbing. The countries that came below United States included China, Brazil, Russia, India, Thailand, Turkey, Indonesia, Iran. I'm struggling with this because these countries, except for United States, many of them, they are countries with major human rights issues. Are we doing something worse than human rights violation? How are we leading the pack? It's complicated, as you know, but I think there's a couple of things that need to be focused on. One is that uh, we punish people not so much because their behavior is troublesome or they're unsalvageable or irredeemable. We punish people for political reasons. We punish people because our politics are fear-based and fear-driven. And politicians, especially in the 80s and the 90s, knew that they could not be elected unless they were known as you know, hard on crime. So that then translated into policies and sentencing statutes that became more and more and more uh, onerous. There were politicians that ran on platforms during that time particularly. I mean, that consciousness still continues today, but it's much less so because there's more appreciation and understanding of that history. But in the day, politicians, even somewhat progressive and liberal politicians, knew that they had to sort of get on the bandwagon in order to convince voters that they were going to be tough on crime. So that then evolved into the war on drugs, for instance. It, it evolved into mandatory sentences where courts, judges who sentenced people did not have discretion to exercise lenience or compassion. And that's why you would have 18, 19, 20-year-old kids going to prison for mandatory sentences with no way of, of, of sort of getting out. Whereas maybe historically, prior to that, a judge could give them a break or they could seek uh, maybe parole at some time where the parole board would be convinced that it was time for them to get out because they were rehabilitated or whatever. We have today young people who are now older people still sitting in jail who have committed crimes that would never have caused them to spend that much time in jail uh, historically. And, and now I think some of the laws are changing state by state and in the federal system. 
But uh, in the meantime, so many lives have been wasted. So many families have been destroyed. So much taxpayer money has been committed to put, you know, taking care of people in prison. Those people have not been able to contribute to society in a constructive way. They have not been able to take advantage of education. And those people have also been taken away from their families in a way that weakened those family systems And the reason it was done is because the politics of the time were such that anyone who expressed compassion in the criminal justice system was seen to be weak and unable to, you know, safeguard the integrity of the American culture. And the integrity of the American culture, of course, was primarily a a, a culture of, you know, white traditions, white values, white thinking, white business, white property, and all of that. And to the extent that criminality was considered to be a function of people who were not white, then it was very easy, I think, for white politicians, particularly to appeal to white voters on the basis of fear. There was not a political incentive for a long time in this country and maybe throughout our history to ever think about the sociological issues, the economic issues, and to sort of deal with those issues. It was much easier just to appeal to people's fear and say, we got to put these people away for a long time, otherwise they're going to hurt you. It resulted, I think, so much in not just wasted lives, it, it, it changed or, or caused you know, entire communities to think differently about their neighbors, about, uh, about, you know, cultural interaction, about, you know, we do live in a society that is, in my view, fear-based. And politicians know that, and they, they contribute to that. They exacerbate that. And one of the things, Francesca, I think we need to do now is understand that the basis for making policy, the basis for making political decisions has to be based on reality based the, rather than based on emotions. And maybe there's some signs that things are changing a little bit, but unfortunately in the last four years, it went the other way again. I was just thinking about the population of Black people, 12% of the population of the United States. And what we're basically saying is that Part of these 12% are the one causing the havoc in this country. If you think about the numbers, so it's what, 12% Black people who represent the population. The prison population is comprised of something like 45, 46% African American people or people of color. And then if you add the Latino population and the Native American population, To that, you've got something like 65% of prisoners are comprised of people of color, most of whom are African American. You do not have any kind of relationship between the representation of African Americans in prison and the nature of the criminal problem in the United States. I don't know how people can look at those statistics and reach the conclusion that the problem of crime in the United States comes out of black communities. It's just almost unconscionable that we have got a situation in the prisons that is not at all reflective of the situation in our communities. But we have that. We do have that. It's the on life sentences it's even more interesting the life sentence representation of people in the United States, I think those of all the people in prison, one out of seven are committed to life sentences. Most of those people are African-American. One out of seven prisoners is doing life, and most of those prisoners are African-American. There are more people in prison doing life sentences in the United States than any other country in the world. There are more people doing life sentences, and again, most of those are African-Americans, than something like, you know, 13 Western uh, European countries. And, you know, most people think, as you were saying, that the prison, the concentration of 
prisoners is is the greatest in 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 the oppressive countries like China and and maybe some of the Middle Eastern countries. Not true. We are by far the country that is more likely to imprison you than you would be if you were in Russia or you're in China or you're in Saudi Arabia. Um, and how could that be? How could that be? Yeah, I, I can't fathom it either. So what can we do to make the justice system a true justice system? We have to recognize, you know, this gets into historical, you know, sociological uh, and economic questions that, you know, may be hard for people to listen to, hopefully not your listeners, but people in general. We know that this country is a country that in many ways is a white nationalist country. I don't mean white nationalist or white supremacist in a, in a conscious way, although it is consciously white supremacists in some quarters. And we know that more and more just from what we've seen in the last few years, right? I mean, there is organized, uh, you know, white supremacy activity that in my view was enabled and and, uh, permitted because the rhetoric of the Trump administration, you know, created some permission to to voice ideas and, and, um, you know, in ways that maybe were harder to voice previously, but we do have a nation that was built, created in a constitution that was originally written by white males who excluded women, excluded people of color, excluded Indians, and excluded people who didn't own property from participating in our system. That's our history. That's our foundation. Throughout history, the struggle has been to distribute power to people who were originally not intended to be part of the power structure. They weren't intended to participate in education. They weren't intended to have human rights because it was a nation based on the assumption that it was white males who were entitled to run things, run things not only in this country, but as we became a powerful country economically, the idea is we could run things in other countries as well. So the struggle really is around changing a consciousness of understanding about who's entitled and who isn't. And that that basic belief that white males are superior is still with us in subtle ways, in in nuanced ways. So you have to look closely over time as to how that systemic racism has embedded itself in in policies and laws, in education, in voting, in, in employment, certainly in the criminal justice system. And, you know, when we start unraveling that, it becomes culturally painful for many people because they have to challenge and question the assumptions that they were born and and raised with. They have to start looking at American history and culture honestly. And that's painful for a lot of people because many, many people to this day will tell you that American exceptionalism is because we had founding fathers who were committed to rights and liberty and and justice and equality and due process when that wasn't true at all. And it took a long, long time for those ideas to find their way into uh, the legal system so that the justice was starting to be distributed throughout society and not just uh, in that way. But this reminds me of the laws after the Civil War that uh, were passed during the Jim Crow era. So there were laws passed in the Jim Crow era, and there were voting regulations that were intentionally intended to create a new kind of slavery after emancipation. The idea was that we needed laws that prevented Blacks from taking power, even though they were legally emancipated after slavery. Well, those laws were, in fact, culturally part of the South, 
But many northern states then adopted that same style of thinking, especially take voting rights, for example. The the voting rights uh, regulations in Washington state had to do with the idea that disenfranchisement of people of color in the South worked very well. So if you adopted those same laws, say in the North, I use Washington state because I know something about our history, then those laws could be used, for instance, to prevent Native Americans from voting. So people don't understand that that whole Jim Crow apparatus and approach to lawmaking was 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 picked up in the north and then it allowed this sort of pervasive basis for uh extending jim crow throughout the country and not just in the south we need to educate people around that and um i'm afraid that that level of education is not done anywhere in the culture including the public schools the public schools still have a tendency to want to romanticize American history. There's a tendency to want people to not have to go through that painful process of questioning who we are. Not until we start to do that, we may not truly understand what our society is made of. What is your thoughts about defunding the police system? Well, I don't, I think from a strategic standpoint, using the term defunding, is not desirable. I think, you know, we have to realistically communicate with people in a way that will, you know, possibly influence them towards, you know, evaluating criminal justice and law enforcement in a way that's consistent with our goals and our needs. I think when we start telling people we're going to defund the police, you know, it just increases the fear, it increases the anxiety, and it makes um, both black people and white people who, you know, are, are committed to progressive change look crazy. So, you know, there's a part of this psychologically that has to be, um, we, we, we have to be careful about how we go about uh, the, the effort to, to deal with justice problems, including law enforcement problems, so that we're not making the problem worse. I would say defunding police should be talked about in terms of redistributing resources, I would talk in terms of changing the concept of police and law enforcement to a concept that's more like social work. I would talk about the need to protect society by reducing the amount of um, potential harm that people can do through intervention. And so it's not defunding the police, it's finding ways to redefine law enforcement and redefine how money to support law enforcement is distributed. So yes, I support progressive, even radical change in terms of how we deal with law enforcement, but I wouldn't uh, necessarily want people to think that we're removing financial support from the effort to deal with the dysfunction that we know happens in society. I think that probably the idea that cops can kill people and get away with it, especially black people, can uh, maybe be that that problem can be eliminated if we understand that the confrontation and the conflict between people who are trying to enforce the law and and, and the, the people who are victims of that can be not, not necessarily eradicated, but it can be ameliorated. It can be diminished by intervention that has a, a social effect as opposed to an effect having to do with legitimizing the use of violence. In my community in Spokane, Washington, we have a current controversy going on about the uh, yearly training programs that are called something about, you know, increasing the ability of police to be conscious of the fact that people want to kill them. Okay, so they get this training where the police are told that people want to kill them. There's a consciousness, a psychology 
of death. And that results, as I understand it, in police being taught the tools and the way of responding to people on the street who want to kill them. And the response, of course, is you have to kill them first. You know, you have to assume when you arrest someone or when you engage someone and you're a law enforcement officer, that person wants to kill you and you may have to kill them first. How crazy is that? I mean, how, you know, and and those people then often are seen by the police as being likely to be people of color more than they are their white friends, right? Uh, it does all have to change, but the idea of defunding police could be counterproductive as opposed to re-educating people about what law enforcement is about and how they should go about doing their job. What do you think about that? You know, I think there needs to be a restructuring and a retraining and refocusing for safety and security in the community. We need to have people that have the expertise to do those things. But I don't know that any cop uh, that I've encountered, both you know socially but also professionally, you know, in the courts and uh, you know a few cops that I've encountered personally in my life, you know, by by being you know even arrested or, or stopped for a ticket or something from driving, I've hardly ever seen a police officer who I would confuse with a social worker. I've never, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't good police officers who have sensitivity and, and compassion and the ability to engage people in a, you know, in a supportive kind of way. But for the most part, they see themselves as cops. They see themselves as people who are probably going to have to be in conflict with the members of the community that they're focusing on. There's there's no sort of consciousness about dealing with a person as a person. There's more of a consciousness of dealing with a person as a potential enemy. And that's not the consciousness that you would expect from a social worker, right? So I use the word social worker in a deliberate manner because shouldn't we have people riding around in police cars who understand their communities, who have different sort of tools for intervening with people, who get sort of the psychology of conflict and and can use different kinds of strategies for reducing the conflict. And there may at the same time be a necessity of having a traditional like cop, maybe even one with a gun, but that would be the last person to come into the conflict. The social workers would be there. They would deal with the person who may have mental health issues, the person who has substance abuse issues, the, the people involved in domestic violence, the, the people who, you know, create problems in their lives that are natural and normal kinds of problems in any community and should never end up in a situation where a cop escalates it because they have no idea about how to reduce the conflict, you know, but you see it all the time where someone who's just a little bit drunk and who's maybe a little bit mad at his or her life, who acts out against a police officer, provokes the officer and ends up dead. Or just sitting in his car not provoking anybody, still yeah. end up dead, or running down the park, yeah. not provoking anybody, still end up dead, right? And if you and I approach that person, that, that person wouldn't end up dead, right? No, absolutely well, not. Why wouldn't, that, why wouldn't that person end up dead? Because we would figure out what to do. <laughs> you know, yeah. we'd, we'd figure out what to do. You know, we'd, we would see our role as trying to help figure out the angles that would cause a good outcome. And, you know, I don't think police are necessarily trained to do that. I'm not saying some police don't do that. I'm just saying the training is is not there. You told us initially that police were trained to be fearful, to think that people want to kill them. So they are always on guard, right? But on that point, it's interesting. That would be true across the board, it seems to me. So if you're a cop and you're feeling at risk, whether or not you're uh, 
encountering a black individual or a white individual, you have that consciousness. So why is it though that it's primarily black people who end up dead? You know, so you have to combine the fact that police are sort of trained to be defensive. They're trained to assume that people are, 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 are likely to want to hurt them. But they assume black people especially are putting them at risk. Black people, for some reason, inherently are more likely to, to be dangerous than, than white people. So the consciousness is not only that the police have to protect themselves and be defensive. The consciousness is they particularly have to be defensive and, and you know, careful around black people. That's a racist consciousness, it seems to me. Why would it be that law enforcement seem to think black people are more likely to to want to hurt them? Well, I think there's two reasons. One is because their experience is that a lot of black people don't trust the police. There are probably historical justifications for that in the black community. But the idea that black people don't trust the police probably is reality-based for black people. For the cop, however, the cop thinks maybe that black people are simply inherently more violent which goes in my way of thinking to the notion that there is a consciousness that we are different based on our color, that we are different based on, you know, where we come from in our bloodline. There is a a notion that seems to me that there are inherent differences between or among the races in how we operate and how we, uh, relate to one another and how human we are in our ability to be uh, compassionate. So, you know, if I'm a cop and I'm feeling tough and I'm feeling strong and I run into a black kid and the black kid isn't as respectful towards me as I think he should be, then it sort of, um, it, 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 it provokes in me a sense that, okay, I need to be really tough. Okay, so if I run into the same situation, exactly the same situation with a white kid, and I don't have the anticipation or the assumption that that white kid is going to be as disrespectful as the black kid, then I'm automatically more relaxed. So there's, I think it's complicated sociologically, but wouldn't you want to... Um, develop some sort of training in order to get at that aspect of our relationship. If you're, you know, dealing with law enforcement training, wouldn't you want cops to be very, very careful so that they're mindful of those kinds of issues that might affect them when they're dealing, especially with a different community? I I don't know. It would just seem to me that that's obvious. Yeah, I I mean, I I think so, too. A lot of things that seem obvious to us is not the reality in the society today as we see it. So I follow you. I get your point totally. And I know we have a lot of police officers that are not terrible officers, So, but they're getting the same training. So what's missing? Well, I think you also have some evidence that uh, many white police officers are involved with white supremacist organizations. They may not publicize that. They they may do that secretly or anonymously, but we have some evidence that, you know, these crazy groups that are really white supremacist groups are composed of law enforcement officers, you know, to some extent. Well, you know, what does that tell us? I mean, that tells us we have a serious, serious problem. Part of that problem has to do with not just the training. It has to do with the selection of police officers. And I think too much the selection criteria is based on wanting someone who is already prone to violence and someone who is already maybe prone to thinking about people of color in a different way than is desirable from the standpoint of what we would like 
in law enforcement. So if I have gone to, uh, maybe I'm a special forces guy. I'm a tough guy who likes to use guns. I like combat. That appeals to me. So, you know, I volunteer for the military because I want to go to Afghanistan. I want to go to Iran. My motivation is to show my manhood and be put in situations where I have an opportunity to engage in combat. I finish my tour in Afghanistan or Iran. I come back home. Now I want to be a cop. And so you interview, you go through the process of competing for a position in law enforcement, and the people who are doing the hiring really like a person who's got that kind of training, that kind of background, that sense of confidence, that sense of personal power. Those people end up with guns on the street. I don't think I overstate that because I think a lot of cops have that kind of background. That scares me. Uh, Professor, what advice do you have for an ordinary Black citizen to avoid being incarcerated unjustly or being murdered? I don't know. You know, I've often thought about what I hear Black parents say to their kids. And it's unfortunate that you would be in a system where if you're a, a, a parent of a Black teenager, to have to tell them to take on a level of you know, sort of respect that is more than what would be expected of someone who's not black. This idea that you can't, you have to be twice as good as the white kid. You have to always be careful never to do anything, say anything, or behave in a way that's going to cause someone to, you know, want to punish you or want to select you out differently than they might select someone else out. So I don't know how to answer your question. I, I guess... I understand if I was a parent, I would probably do the same thing. I'd say, be careful around cops. Make sure that, you know, you're not doing anything wrong if you're driving. Make sure if a cop, you know, interacts with you that you don't give the cop any kind of reason to do something that they might otherwise not do. But isn't that a sad, sad commentary on the relationship of the Black community with especially white cops. I mean, how do you, I don't know the answer to your question. You know, I really don't. I mean, the whole society has to change. The culture has to change. Law enforcement has to change. So we get to the point where we have an expectation realistically that people will be treated the same and they won't be selected out in a negative way simply because of their race. But until that happens, then I suppose I would want everyone to sort of be a little bit sensitive to and careful about the fact that disparate treatment does in fact happen in this country. What What is your response to that? Prof, every Black mother who has a son is afraid. They live on pins and needles every day when that boy goes out. That is a fact. It doesn't matter whether you have a good kid or a bad kid. Every mother has a right to have a living child. That's what they live through. Right. So, you know, it's, 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 it's a complicated problem, but you're a mother or you, you might be a mother, but you're going to continue to have those concerns and you're probably going to continue to talk to your kids about those concerns until you're confident that those concerns don't exist anymore, but they do exist. So. Yeah, they do. 400 years of this concern uh, is still existing. And I was reading some materials it was about 12 to 20 million African slaves that were brought over. Now, think about it, Prof. 400 years later, 40 million. It took 400 years for it to double. It's almost like it's almost as good as being wiped out when you really think about it. Because if you look at the population of white people 400 years ago versus now, it doesn't paint the same picture. It wasn't just double what it was then. So it's, it's a very tough situation for Black parents. Prof, do you think you are alone or you are a lone voice on this subject? No, I don't. I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a product of lots of people who have these conversations. I'm a product of lots of professionals who have these conversations. But uh, I don't feel alone at all because my circle of friends, the sort of bubble that I live in, 
are people that um, talk about these issues all the time. However, that group that I'm a part of, I don't mean just locally, but just the the sort of intellectual and professional circles uh, nationally that I'm a part of is sort of marginalized in the sense that we are considered and we are discounted or dismissed as what liberals, progressives, uh, you know, people who are probably associated with progressive goals and progressive causes that go back to what we were talking about earlier. I think that we need to fundamentally look at our history, look at the assumptions upon which, you know, the country was founded and start educating about that and start introducing, you know, new tools and techniques for people to think a little bit differently about their communities so that we can engage in some changes that, you know, distribute human rights and create a new way of understanding about our multicultural relationships. That threatens people's ideas about America, and it also threatens them in the sense that they fear that we see this in the white supremacist uh, movement and and organizations. I have some uh, contacts with uh, sort of right-wing, what I would call racist people in my area. And I engage them from time to time because I'm interested in their thinking and their philosophy and their justifications for their position. Without exception, they deny being racist. Even if they're listening to and influenced by white supremacist propaganda, they still deny being racist. So I would say, why would you sort of be looking at or influenced by what looks to me as racist propaganda? And the answer is this. It's not racist. What it is, is a desire and an intention or necessity of protecting white people against uh, their being um, minimized or their being marginalized by progressives who want black people to have special rights, right? So we had the Civil War, we had emancipation, slavery is over, we've gotten rid of Jim Crow, we went through the Civil Rights Movement, we had Martin Luther King, everything's even now, everything's equal, everything's okay, we're over that, and now what Black people and progressive people like liberal professors like Professor Critchlow are doing is trying to create a system or a regime to put black people over white people. So the necessity is for us to organize against that so we can support equality rather than special rights for people of color. And that's a way of continuing and reinforcing our history. And what we need to be doing is exactly the opposite. So, you know, I'm a white liberal professor, and to many people, that's a signal that I don't care about white people anymore. I want to do something else, and and I don't want to get too far out here, but I really do think that to the extent that I might be economically concerned about equal rights, equal justice, opportunity, access, to, to that same extent, I might be identified as a, not just a progressive person, but probably as a socialist. So that attachment of that label to me then allows people to think of me in a way that I'll never be taken seriously because I'm probably trying to undermine America and capitalism. So there's a whole sort of way of thinking about progressives, whether they're black or white, that allows people to basically just shut down. That is quite amazing. They're not seeing beyond the overall benefits of the whole American society. Think about it. If you have a black person that has a bachelor's degree, that could not get a job, that are doing security jobs, That is a big loss to our society. Multiply that to the highest order and you will see the impact 
is not only to the black person that is reduced to doing security job, but the impact is to the overall society. It's a big loss. As you said, there has to be some kind of education so that people understand it's not putting somebody above all. It is going to be the absolute best for the society that we live in. America would have been more powerful than it is if we truly have a system that that is equity-based, that that has good justice. It would have been much better. Tell me about your book, Professor. You wrote this new book, and I want our listeners to know a little bit about it and how they can get it. Well, you can buy it on online through uh, any online distributor, or you can go to a bookstore and just have the bookstore order it uh, if it's not otherwise on the shelf. But the book is called The Lifer and the Lawyer. And the book is based on my relationship with a man who's now a friend of mine, but I met him 43 years ago. I was a young lawyer just out of law school. And I uh, went from law school back to my hometown and I started practicing law in my father's law firm. And I was only out of law school about a year or so. So I was very much a neophyte. I was a newbie, but I was interested in doing criminal law. And a local judge appointed me to represent this man whose name is Michael Anderson on 22 serious felonies. Uh, Michael Anderson is an African-American man who was sort of victimized, not just by poverty, but by neglect and abuse during his early life uh, being raised in the South side of Chicago. And so he spent from about age 10, um, lots of time in juvenile institutions and prisons and in some kind of, you know, jailhouse situation, because what he did was sort of just get into, you know, consistent crime as a child. At some point when he was in his twenties, his girlfriend, uh, and at that point they had two kids that, that they had quite early in life, His girlfriend said, let's get out of Illinois. Let's get out of Chicago. She had a cousin in this place in eastern Washington, which was quite isolated and provincial. And it was certainly very, very different than Chicago. And it was mostly a white population. But she had a cousin who lived there, which was my community. And so they came out with the idea that they would change their life. Things would calm down. Michael would be influenced in a positive way to sort of go to work and leave his criminal life behind. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. They did move out to southeastern Washington. And after a while, he sort of went back to uh, criminal behavior that was very hurtful. And some of it was quite violent. So here I am, you know, representing him, and he ended up uh, being sentenced to 10 consecutive life sentences. He never killed anyone. He was sentenced by judges who thought that his life was irredeemable. They thought that he needed to go to jail for the rest of his life. He was like 24, 25 years old at the time. I had argued that at some point he could be rehabilitated. He should be given a chance for rehabilitation. But the judges said, you know, this man should die in prison. So I have stayed in touch with him for 43 years. And in the last few years, I undertook to represent him before the Washington Parole Board because he has been uh, not just rehabilitated. He's been a model prisoner for over 30 years. He's had no problems. And he, um, he, he transitioned to a place where he was spiritually evolved. He educationally uh, developed. He started focusing on taking care of the young prisoners, trying to teach them ways of thinking about themselves so that they didn't sort of repeat what he did in his life when they got out. He's been actually a phenomenally effective person, both in changing his life and relating to other people. I've stayed in touch with him over time. I really have uh, admired his progress and the man that he's become. He's now in his late 60s. He continued to stay married. His wife has committed to his life for over 40 years. He's scheduled now to be released in June of this year. So this was such an interesting story to me that I thought, 
what a wonderful opportunity to tell a story, not just about his life, but to superimpose on that or juxtapose my life, which is really a life of white privilege. And so to use the book as a vehicle for talking about the criminal justice system as it impacted a black man, but not an innocent black man, a black man who truly probably needed some, you know, some, 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 you know, prison time against my life and also maybe educate in a subtle way, the reader about how the criminal justice system treats this particular man who was considered by the white justice system to be unsalvageable, to be demonized, to be basically a monster. And how, in fact, not only did he turn out not to be a monster, he turned out to be extraordinarily spiritual. He's a Christian man, and he's a man who probably when he gets out will be able to do some wonderful things in his community. Well, so the book actually did come together. It's now out. It's been out for about a month. And the book will not only be a vehicle to tell the story I just told, it will be a platform for Michael Anderson to use because his intention is to create a ministry when he gets out that uh, focuses primarily on young African-American men who are at risk of going down that same path he went to. I want to end by saying one thing about his story. I say in the book that he's probably more capable of doing good than I have ever been able to do. He's come further. He's traveled further and evolved in a in a way that's so extraordinary. I not only admire him, not only is he a friend. I'm kind of um, I'm I'm I, I'm kind of uh, when I look at him, I'm I'm like thinking he's he walks among the enlightened ones, you know. And there's not a whole lot of people that I encounter in my life who I would say that about. He really sort of walks in the light in a way that I just find extraordinary. And it's hard for people to believe that when I talk about him. And this was the guy who the judges said should die in prison. He was a monster. He would never change. He would never be irredeemable. And what I say in the book is that attitude and the decisions that were made about this friend of mine, Michael Anderson, were to some extent based on the fact that he was black. And the other thing is he would never still be in prison after 43 years if he was a white person. And I'm absolutely convinced of that. I can't prove it, but I know by experience and statistics that murderers don't do 43 years often. You know, they'll do their 15, 20, 25 years and, you know, they'll get out. Michael Anderson's still in prison, even though everyone knows he's not a danger anymore and has not been a danger for some 30 years. So that's really what the book's about. The book is about the fact that even though some people are seriously damaged, that doesn't mean they're going to be damaged all their life. It doesn't mean that they can't be rehabilitated. It doesn't mean they can't contribute to society. And it certainly doesn't mean that they have to spend their entire lives in prison. Wow. Thank you so much. I'm so excited about Michael Anderson. And he is definitely an extraordinary person because prison would have broken them. Right. I mean, there's so many that went the other way. But his is a story of great redemption, as you said. So I'm excited to to hear that. And I look forward to reading it as well. I am hoping others will pick up the book because I'm sure it would definitely engage us in a way that we've never known about the justice system. I'm looking forward to it. Is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners that I've not asked you? I'm not sure that there is, but I do hope that everyone understands it. You know, the communication about issues of race means that many of us, and I think this is both true for black people as well as white people, but I'm speaking primarily about white people, probably because my experiences as a white man, we have to, um, understand that there's pain involved in transforming ourselves and our communities. It's not easy. And it's the pain that we talked about earlier. It's the pain of confronting our identity as individuals, but also our identity as a nation. We have to sort of 
take a step back and say, okay, let's do this. Let's do this work. It's hard work because we're going to suffer in the process of evaluating who we are, but we don't change. We don't grow. We don't go forward on the journey of being respectful, of being kind, of being sensitive to our neighbors, our friends, our communities without looking inward at where we ourselves have deficits. And I know that that's hard, but I think everyone needs to sort of hold hands and do that together. Absolutely. You cannot say it any better than that. Professor, I want to thank you so much for for joining me today on Reimagining Black Relations. I truly appreciate your time. To all our listeners, don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and encourage them to subscribe on yourblackmatters.com. Also, if you have any feedback, please email me at francesca at yourblackmatters.com. Professor, thank you again for your contribution to the history we are making together. I'm really excited to be a part of it. I'm praying that God will bless you and your family. And to all our listeners, may God bless you as well. And may the Lord bless the United States of America. See you next time.